Hi, this is Bob Heiler of the Bankruptcy Law Success Podcast, where we introduce you to successful bankruptcy lawyers, as well as powerful ideas that can transform your bankruptcy practice. Today, I'm speaking with Christy Arkovich, a bankruptcy attorney in Tampa, Florida, for over 20 years. Christy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, so Dave Danielson introduced us, I think because he thought you were doing really cool things with private student loans. So I guess that's my first question. I, I met Dave Danielson through the podcast. Uh, how, did, how did you get to know Dave? Well, we have been a best case customer for probably 15, 20 years now with our bankruptcy practice. Mm-hmm. And so we've noticed the software that they have regarding student loans. And I haven't really had a lot of experience with that yet. But we noticed that Austin Smith had like a spotlight and some blogs that were highlighted there. And Austin uh, does a lot with private student loans. He's out in New York, but he has a class action case in Texas. So we reached out to him and we said we were having the same successes here in Florida. We've had some very nice judgments getting rid of private student loans for non-qualified educational loans. Specifically in these cases, it's been Caribbean medical schools. And we've gotten rid of several hundred thousand in one case over in Orlando, and we just got rid of about 80,000 about a week or two ago here in Tampa. So we're having excellent success with that, and I wanted to share that because it looked like he was collecting up some cases. This is a new trend around the nation. It first started with a case up north in Ray Decena, and in Florida, as far as I know, my two are the only cited cases. So hopefully it'll be the beginning of a lot more to follow. And it deals with these oddball type schools. So that's how I ended up meeting you. Okay, awesome. So I don't want to go too far back in time, but one question I do like to ask is, what got you started in bankruptcy? I know you you hung your own shingle in 1995. Was your focus always on bankruptcy from day one? No, actually, we were doing a lot of employment law in the beginning, plaintiff's employment cases. And I don't know if you know much about that, but those cases are generally long-term. They're contingency fee, which means the attorney's fees are paid at the end based on results. And it also involves a lot of attorney time, where bankruptcy was really good to combine with my practice to keep it diversified. And it also was a shorter-term cases, more cash up front, and a lot of staff time instead of attorney time. So it was really to balance my practice. And I also had a very close friend in Jacksonville. I could use him as a mentor. I did know bankruptcy from law school a little bit, but, you know, I didn't have any practical experience. So those factors ended up to be, you know, almost 50% of my practice for a few years. And then it became a very large part of my practice before the, the bankruptcy code back CPA came out, I think in 2005 or six, something around there. Mm-hmm. We were doing a lot of it then. Yeah. Uh, but it's always been a good diversifier for my practice. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm in the New York City area, but even here, you, you we heard about what happened in Tampa and the Florida market in general being so hit so hard by the mortgage meltdown. So you were working pretty hard up to, I guess, the last year, so 2005, 2006, and then then you just dove straight into the mortgage meltdown. What was, what was that like for you? Well, like you said, there was a lot of mortgage foreclosure here in Florida. I think we were one of the top two in the nation that was hit by that. And so we dropped employment law entirely in 2008. And we still did bankruptcy, but we started to do a lot of foreclosure defense. And around the same time, I did try to start doing some more student loan work, but our clients didn't have jobs. Mm -hmm. And so they just decided to put it on the back burner, not deal with it right now. They needed to, you know, figure out how to live right now. So we didn't do a lot of student loan work then, but we did a ton of foreclosure defense. And that lasted probably until about two years ago. And lately, my practice has been mostly probably about a quarter bankruptcy and three quarters or more student loan work now. I used to do a lot of student loan work for the other side, actually, 
working for Sally May and ECMC and Terry and USA Funds. They were all the big servicers and guarantors for federal student loans. And I used to run around the state of Florida, and we had trials in pretty much all the major cities where we would argue against the discharge of student loans. And fortunately, you know, at that time, our side was the winning side because, you know, I represented the other side. It was very hard to discharge student loans, but I've since switched sides. And so now I only do consumer work. And our bankrupt, or our, our student loan practice is both in and out of bankruptcy. So this is this is when everything was under the undue hardship student loan standard. Is that right? Yes, and that standard is getting kind of ancient now. It's I think the case dates back from 1987, and there's all kinds of reasons why it's obsolete. I haven't reviewed what those reasons are recently, so I couldn't really you know lay them all out now. But it's just a bad test. Yeah. But it is what it is. And it was, it was brought into fruition, I think, by the Second Circuit. So it's not a U.S. Supreme Court case, but our 11th Circuit, as well as the majority of the circuits, do follow it. Mm-hmm. And it's basically a three-pronged test that you have to show to get an undue hardship. It's very difficult. Mm-hmm. And so we're not really trying to file those cases. Instead, we're looking at, if we're in bankruptcy, we're looking at ways to discharge the loans as a non-qualified educational loan or be able to require the bankruptcy court permit an income-driven plan, maybe separately classify the student loans. Because I don't know if you know this, but when you file a bankruptcy, say it's a Chapter 13, you walk in there with 100000 of federal student loans. If you've got a 9% interest rate, those loans are 150 when you come out five years later. Mm-hmm. And so you might use the bankruptcy to get rid of a house problem, you know, get a foreclosure, short sale, get a deficiency, you might fix a car and so forth. But you've created a really large student loan problem for them if you just, you know, put it on automatic pilot and let the Department of Ed put everything in forbearance for five years, which is their normal practice. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that we've been successful in doing, and we just had a confirmation hearing on this yesterday, as a matter of fact, where we filed a memo of law arguing why it is not unfair discrimination to separately classify a federal student loan and allow for our client to participate in an income-driven plan. In this case, for instance, he qualified for a $200 payment and after 10 years, his loan would be forgiven under the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program because he's a teacher. Mm-hmm. Whereas if we didn't do any of that work and it just was in forbearance, he would have came back out with a much larger loan and no time. You know, He'd be halfway done the public service where if we hadn't done this, he wouldn't have even started. Mm-hmm. He would still you know, owe now twice as much or maybe 50% more than what he did. So I, I think that... Those are the kinds of things that we find working in bankruptcy now. They are new. A lot of them are new trends around the nation, and they're not necessarily attacking Bruner head on because that doesn't seem to be working very well. Yeah. And by Bruner, you're referring to the undue hardship, the three-pronged test, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. So this is something I, I, I want to get into the private student loan stuff, but before we do, you're talking about kind of building a practice, at least in part, on doing some income-based repayment plans for for federal student loans and or doing some of the public service kind of loophole like for teachers and stuff where they make 10 years of payments. One of the big pieces of feedback I've heard from bankruptcy attorneys out there who are trying to get into the student loan business is that business certainly helps clients, but it's not a profitable practice area because there's no money in it. Sure. Because by definition, you're either dealing with a poor public servant or you're dealing with someone who's overburdened with, you know, a zillion dollars in student loans. 
they're in trouble on their student loans because they're not making much money. So, so have you been able to to turn that into a profitable area? And here, I'm I'm really focused on the federal student loan piece of it, not the the private student loan. I believe so. It, like I mentioned, it's it's at least 75, if not more, percent of my practice right now. The vast majority of people I see are student loans. And we have a small practice. I have one other attorney that works for me as well as four or five full-time staff, a couple part-time. Mm-hmm. But what we do is with the federal loans, it's just like a bankruptcy practice. If you just did bankruptcy and you didn't sue creditors for FDCPA-type violations or do other things, then you're probably not making much money either. Mm-hmm. Our bankruptcy practice is not the most lucrative. It's not the most profitable by itself. But if you add in the foreclosures and suing creditors for different violations, it, that's where your money is. So I think you do have to do those adversaries and do those FDCPA. And in Florida, we have a, a law called Florida Consumer Collection Practices Act. There's also the, the Cell Phone Act. We use that a lot. And that's how we make that bankruptcy practice more profitable without having to become a mill to try to limit the numbers of times we touch our file and file thousands of them because we really don't want to be that kind of a firm either. Mm-hmm. So we handle you know, a pretty normal amount and we try to do those consumer violations. So with the federal student loans, it's not that much different. I mean, if you're just doing an analysis and putting someone into the correct income-based plan, for one, your clients are extremely ecstatic because they're not getting that kind of advice from their servicer. They don't know what to do. It's sort of a deer in a headlight. So you're really helping them out. They'll send you other referrals and get your name out there. But if they're being collected in a way that is in violation of any of these consumer statutes, that leads into lawsuits. One of the very first student loan cases I took is kind of a good example of this. I kind of forgot about this. It was probably about four or five years ago. An elderly lady came to me, and she had tried to get a disability discharge. She had no money, but she paid me like a few hundred dollars or something, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And we sued her creditor for the illegal collection calls that she was receiving. We received the settlement. And from that, then we babysat, we, we, we had our fees paid from that, and then we had a portion of the money that went to her given to us to then babysit and get her disability application through. And so the first case took about three months, and then it took about six months to get her disability approved. So she came to us with a problem, and about six, seven months later, we had a little bit of money in her pocket, plus her phone calls all stopped immediately, and her disability was finally approved by the Department of Ed. And we only did that because we sued the creditor for the collection violations that they were committing. So that's one of the reasons that we can make it profitable. But most people, when they come to you, they don't always have just federal loans. Half the time, they don't know what they have, but they usually will have some private ones as well. And the private ones are where we can really negotiate very good settlements, We can do those consumer violation cases, like I mentioned, a lot more of that with those kinds of private loans. So we do a little bit of everything. I think if you just tried to do one part of student loans, you wouldn't find it profitable because when the client comes to see you, they want you to do all of it. So you'd want to farm out the stuff you didn't so that you were a solution for the client. But if you do all of it, I think it would be profitable because you have stuff that makes you money plus stuff that would pay the the bill. Mm -hmm. So that's really cool. You're saying that at least on the on the federal student loan side, even if those cases aren't particularly profitable, they're a great kind of lead source for you know FDCPA violations and those sorts of things, which are profitable. Am I? That's exactly yes. Great. So one of the questions that I always have is, you know, you have an attorney on staff, and you yourself are are talking to these clients. How, what questions do you ask to kind of uncover these FDCPA violations? Oh, sure. Well, first of all, we find out what type of loans they have. Mm-hmm. 
you know, uh, some of it's federal, some of it's private. We don't typically go after the federal loans for violations. I understand that you probably can because many of the violations are being committed by a private collector that's been hired by the federal government. Mm -hmm. But because there was an amendment to the TCPA a while back, we haven't really looked into doing a lot of that. So we're focusing on the private violations. Mm -hmm. And most people, you know, they might have an 80-20 ratio where 80% is federal, 20 is private. It's all over the place. We have some that they have more private than they do federal loans. Mm -hmm. And then with those, the first thing that we see is that either they can't make payments and they're receiving collection calls and they're simply blocking them, mm -hmm. or they are making payments and they're not making a dent. So the loan is either staying the same or it's going up. We had a client earlier this morning, for instance, that I spoke with, and he owes 101000 and his average interest rate is probably around 9%. He has three loans. And so his loans are accruing 900 or what is it, uh, 750 or something in interest per month. And he's making a payment of 650 and that's the absolute most that he can pay. Mm -hmm. So his loan's going up a little, never going down. And so he's come to us saying, what can I do? You know, I need to get rid of this in some fashion. I can't qualify for a home. I have too big of an installment debt that we're making and too big of a loan to, uh, to income ratio. So for those kinds of cases, we actually recommend a strategic default. And we warn them that it will hurt their credit. It'll hurt the credit of their co-borrower if they have a co-borrower. So we go through that analysis. Sometimes we'll bring the co-borrower in and we'll talk with them as well. And then after a few months of default, we generally will have a, a posture where the other side will be interested in settling with us. Maybe we've collected some consumer violations. So for the, for the violations that we look for, I particularly like the uh, TCPA, uh, Telephone Consumer Protection Act. Mm -hmm. It's a federal law and it governs cell phones. And one of the larger servicers in the nation, Navient, has a policy where they just continue to call if, even if you ask them not to. And I suppose that this law is not enough of a deterrent because they still make money by making those calls. And they still have that policy, even though they've been sued a number of times around the nation for TCPA violations. So that's one of the ones that we look for. And the reason why I look for that one is because it's a per-call damage. So the damage is statutory for my client is potentially $500 to $1,500 per call. And it's $1,500 if it's willful. And we're starting to try to trend more to the $1,500 per call rather than the minimal $500 because these are willful. You know, our clients will usually give many revocations of permission to call their cell phone. They'll ask them several times. They'll note down the date and time of each time. Sometimes they'll do it in writing. You've got companies on the other side that will constantly do this. They're sued all the time, but they still do it anyway. Mm -hmm. So why why wouldn't that be willful? And so I think that $1,500 per call is a more fair assessment of what they're worth rather than perhaps the minimal 500 for an occasional phone call with one revocation and they've never been involved in lawsuits before. Sure, that may not be willful. So we focus on the TCPA. We also like the FDCPA and the FCCPA, which we have here in Florida. It's very much like the the federal counterpart. The one advantage of the FCCPA that we have in Florida is that it applies to all persons. So it's not just debt collectors, it's also original creditors. That's great. Yeah. And it also has a statute of limitations of two years instead of one. So it's double the time. Mm -hmm. TCPA is four years. So we like those. And, and the nice thing about the FDCPA and the Florida counterpart is that it allows for attorney's fees. So if we combine violations of both laws, because the TCPA does not allow for a separate statutory attorney's fee. If we add them both together, we're more likely to settle that case because of the other side's exposure to our attorney's fees. So we're looking at multiple violations. When we file a lawsuit, we want multiple revocations of consent if possible with specifics as to 
the date and time of when that was done, copies of any letters, and then we have screenshots of phone calls after that. We have our clients keeping track of any calls that are before 8 a.m. or after 9 p.m. A lot of times these private loan servicers, they don't properly educate their people to know who to call and when to call. So the law about not being able to call a third party except for one time and effort to locate them, that's violated a fair amount. I mean, I'll have a servicer talk to my client who's not able to make a payment. First thing they'll do 10 minutes later is they'll call the person's mother. You know, they'll call their mom on them, basically. Mm -hmm. And you can't do that. You know, they obviously know how to reach my client. They just talk to them. So that would be a violation, mm -hmm. I believe, of the FDCPA. So uh, those are the kinds of things that we look for. And I think that's the way to make this type of a practice profitable. If we just filed income-based applications, you know, we might make a little bit of a living, but it really wouldn't be that much. Okay. Yeah. So in this kind of example, you talked about someone coming in this morning. I don't want to talk about his particular case, but in a hypothetical version of that case, you're making a, a recommendation to do a strategic default and then settle with the student loan provider or servicer to, to a lesser amount. It sounds like that would be outside of the bankruptcy process. Can you talk a little bit about when you recommend people go into bankruptcy or not? Sure. Go ahead. Sure. Yeah, that process is outside the bankruptcy. That's true. The bankruptcy solutions that we have found for student loans, again, they involve that non-qualified educational loan. Uh, we're really starting to, I think, see more of that because of that trend that's going around the nation now. We're also seeking to get people on income base so they're not adding up their loan during that forgiveness or um, forbearance period during the five years. So those two things are working really well. We do see some private student loan settlements in bankruptcy. One of the advantages of settling if you're in bankruptcy is there's a waiver of the, of the uh, debt forgiveness taxable event mm -hmm. because it's now discharging bankruptcy. So we are a fan of that. We had a case that we filed last spring where our client was a friend uh, of someone who was deceased. And the deceased borrower uh, that he co-signed for um, had filed, or actually I don't know if they filed bankruptcy, I don't remember that. But anyway, um, they weren't paying, obviously, they passed away. And so my client, the friend, um, had co-signed, and he had filed a bankruptcy but hadn't, hadn't done anything to discharge the loan. So what we did is we reopened the bankruptcy, and we argued that it was not a qualified educational loan. It wasn't a dependent relationship. This was a friend. Mm -hmm. Sibling would be the same. And we did agree on a uh, very low settlement. I don't believe it was confidential, but without remembering whether it is or not, I won't get into any specifics. But we agreed to a very low settlement because it was sort of a, an area of first impression for the court. And I felt that there's a possibility it could go either way. My client wanted the closure, you know, and he got a very, very nice offer. And so we accepted it. So that was another good opportunity of bankruptcy. And there was no forgiveness of tax, forgiveness of debt taxable event. So that was nice. Mm -hmm. So you can always, you know, file an undue hardship case. And many of the collectors, debt collectors, debt buyers, or original creditors on these private student loan cases We'll settle them, and not all, but many of them will. And if you get a settlement of, say, 20 to 50 cents on the dollar, it doesn't necessarily have to be all at one time. It could be spread out over you know, many years. Most of our settlements have no interest going forward. And so it becomes a very affordable payment, probably the only payment that our client could actually make on the loan. So it's a, it's a value to the other side as well. But then you have a discharge of the remainder, you know, 40 to 60 cents on the dollar, basically, with, with no taxable event. That's in the bankruptcy process, but... Yeah, it would be in the bankruptcy. In the strategic default example that you gave earlier, my understanding that if that's outside of the bankruptcy process, there would be a forgiveness of, let's say, 60 cents on the dollar, 
and there would be t that would be a taxable event. Or are you suggesting that the amount discharged would be like instead of say sixty thousand dollars in right now, it would be ten thousand dollars a year, something like that? I don't know how how would that work. I believe that they would be receiving the ten ninety nine at the end because in, in, until the payments are made, the entire debt is still listed as a debt. And I, I've never had a client who's received a 1099 as soon as the agreement was signed. Oh, okay. It's generally later, yeah, later when they forgive it. So we we describe the process. We tell them that they may want to consult with a tax advisor as to the impact of that. They may be insolvent where the IRS may give them a waiver for that. I don't deal with tax law, so we pretty much have a couple people locally that we refer them to that. But to, to date, I don't think we've had hardly anyone that's been that concerned on a taxable event mm -hmm. um, because the student loan itself is much more immediate to them. Mm -hmm. It's a problem that they have to deal with right now. Maybe they're afraid of being garnished with their wages. Maybe they're afraid of other things happening, but it's more immediate. Mm -hmm. So taxes is not their first consideration. But just to give a sense of the, of the, of the magnitude of the problem, if we're dealing with $100,000 in student loans, and you negotiate a settlement with a discount of, of 60 cents on the dollar, then we're talking about receiving a, a 1099 with 60000 in income, but that's occurring like 10, 15 years from now, and you're only paying a portion of that. So you're not dealing with the full 100000 you're dealing with 60000 and then let's say it's 20% of 60. Yeah, maybe like a 20, right. Yeah, so now you're paying $12,000 in 10, 15 years and you can kind of get on top of your, okay, that's, I could see that being a viable strategy. Yeah. I, I suppose that's for a qualified, what you might call a qualified private student loan. And then if they do have kind of an unqualified private student loan scenario, like some of the ones that you've described, where someone co-signed for a friend or maybe someone took a educational loan in a Caribbean medical school, you could you could try the bankruptcy process and get that private student loan discharge as an unqualified student loan. Is that is that right? Or... That's right. Mm -hmm. And then the, then you wouldn't have to worry about the tax issue for that. Mm -hmm. Well, I love this. I know that you are connected with Austin Smith. Sure. But how did you really learn the ins and outs of, of asserting this claim in an adversarial court procedure? Well, with the undue hardship, I had prior experience. Uh-huh. Uh, representing the other side, like I mentioned. For student loans as a whole, I did attend a workshop by an attorney by the name of Josh Cohen that's up north, up in Connecticut and Rhode Island. Uh -huh. He's very experienced with all the different programs and such, and that was something that I didn't know at the time. So that kind of filled that hole for me. Uh -huh. As for the qualified educational loan, how did I run across that? You know, I actually have no idea. Maybe I read that In Ray DeSena case, because I do try to keep up on recent student loan events. I might have read it, and then I ran across a client who went to a Caribbean medical school <laughs> and his loan, you know, he was never able to pass the boards. And so he could never get a medical job. He was working like 10 or $11 an hour when I first met him. Oh no. Yeah. And he owed several hundred thousand dollars of debt of both private and federal. And, and he was a mess. He, he didn't know what to do. He was relatively young, too, mm -hmm. and he couldn't pass the boards. He tried. He took the test, I think, a number of times, but was never able to pass it. So we took a stab at doing that and received that discharge, and now we've recently done it again here in Tampa. So I think I just read the case and decided, hey, I can do this. I can try this. Mm -hmm. We've now shared our complaints a few times for other folks in the nation who might also be interested in it. And I'm always available by email if anyone would like a copy of anything. We have some complaints for that, like I mentioned. 
We've just filed some class actions on the public service loan forgiveness, so I've had someone ask for our complaints on that as well. Mm-hmm. We're always willing to work with other attorneys. I understand that you know a lot of attorneys out there, they'd like to keep their hands in a more complicated student loan matter, but they don't really want to handle it on their own, mm-hmm. you know, not having prior experience in it. So we're willing to co-counsel and get involved for that aspect, regardless of where it is. It doesn't have to be in Florida for that. Uh, but that's probably how I got involved on it. Awesome. One of the great things about getting involved in the student loan market is we're dealing with an addressable market that's growing every year, and it's a it's a boom market. You know, you contrast that to bankruptcy, where filings are down over fifty percent since the peak, and this is a great kind of related market to go into. Are you experiencing that? Yeah, uh, definitely. In Florida, filings are down for bankruptcy. Foreclosure filings are very down. So student loans has been a perfect response for keeping our practice at its same level. We haven't had to lay any staff off or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And student loans now, I don't know if you knew this, but they total $1.4 trillion. And that number doesn't mean a lot to me. I mean, I I don't think of it as that. What I look at it is student loan debt exceeds vehicle and credit card debt combined. Mm-hmm. And so that's a really big market. And the Wall Street Journal, they report that one out of six borrowers are in default. The New York Times had a slightly different way of saying it. They, they said that 65% were in repayment. Mm-hmm. So that to me means that you know, 35, 40% are not paying when maybe they, they are expected to pay or should be paying. And a lot of them are on forbearance. Mm-hmm. And forbearance, it's fine for a temporary Band-Aid. It's a zero payment, basically, but you have capitalizing interest. So when a client has a few years of forbearance, at the tail end of that, they're going to have a loan that might be twice as much as what they did when they first graduated. Mm-hmm. And it's a much larger problem for them. And what happens is, is then they get a job and then they see what their payments are because they no longer need forbearance. Their payments are huge because they owe so much more at that time. So it is a growing area. The income-based programs are complicated. There's half dozen of them. Half the time when I see a client, they're in the wrong one. They don't know why they're in it. The servicer told them to get in it. <laughs> they'll, they'll consolidate all their loans together. And when you, put, when you combine a Parent PLUS loan with other loans, you've tainted them all. So now you're only eligible for the worst of the half dozen plans. And they need advice as to not to do that. Mm-hmm. For one thing, it would save them several hundred dollars a month. So, so we see it as, and right now we have President Trump and Secretary DeVos We don't see any legislative help out there for student loans in the immediate future. There's always been talk about expanding the bankruptcy code. There's always a pending bill about it, but it's never really gone anywhere. And in today's environment, I don't expect any relief from that for several years. So what we're doing is we're using these consumer violations and our knowledge of these programs and different things to reduce student loan debt in a way that works now. And really, it's the only relief out there that we see for a few years. But I think that student loans as a whole are going to be a problem for a long time. Matthew Tobai, he just wrote an article for the Rolling Stones magazine a couple weeks ago. And I think he titled it The Great College Swindle or Mm -hmm. something like that. And yeah, and he was he was going into stuff like, you know, how do we get to this point? And originally, you basically had folks that like when I went to school you were encouraged to get as high of a degree as you can, go to the best school that you can. And none of us really did an analysis of, well, what's the job going to pay at the other end? What's the total cost of education going to be? There were really no disclosure requirements. Colleges didn't tell people what it was really going to cost, especially some of these for-profit schools. And so you have everyone going to college. So if every, and you know, if you are the parent, 
you want to make sure that your child has everything that they need in life to be the best that they can be. So you're going to help them get those loans. You're going to encourage it. You're going to get Parent PLUS loans if you can. And then on the other end, then you've got everybody has a college degree. So the bachelor's degree is just like a high school diploma. It's sort of like 50 is the new 40. (laughs) (laughs) Same same concept. And, And so, you know, everybody's got a bachelor's degree and there's no way to set yourself apart to make yourself marketable for that higher wage job. And, and that's kind of how we ended up in this. And we also have loans that were just like the mortgage industry. They were securitized. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these private loans are all put into a trust. Mm-hmm. And so you don't have responsibility by the lenders to ensure that those loans will ultimately be paid back. For private loans, they didn't do that. They were all securitized for the most part. And for Parent PLUS loans, they didn't even care how long the parent might still be working. A lot of these loans went to grandparents who might have one year left until they retire. Why did you just grant them $40,000 of loans? You know, they have no assets and they're going to retire in a year. (laughs) So you didn't have accountability. Mm -hmm. And you really still don't have that. So I don't think that if anyone were getting into the student loan business now, that it's going to end tomorrow. It's got several years in front of it. Even if they do find solutions for some problems, there's still going to be probably new unintended consequences or there's going to be other problems that you know can't be fixed. So mm-hmm. I, think I think it's got many years left to go. Absolutely. So there's kind of a paved path when it comes to getting new clients on the bankruptcy side. On the student loan side, this, this concept of hiring a, a bankruptcy lawyer or just an attorney to help you through the student loan maze, is, that's, not, that's not an established path. Can you give a few tips on how to get customers? Yeah, that was one of our very first problems. No one has heard of a student loan attorney. It's, it's a phrase that most legal directories, they don't have it as a category. No individual has ever really heard of that. I, I do seminars every now and again. The last one I did was for a group of about 300 veterinarians. I asked uh, if anyone raised their hands if they'd ever heard of student loan attorney. Nobody raised their hands. So it's, there's, it, the field isn't really recognized yet. So what we did with our practice here in Tampa was we made sure that the bankruptcy attorneys who normally would say, if someone asked about student loans, there's nothing you can do with that. That was their response. And that was my response too years ago because I was only thinking in context of Bruner. So I was like every other bankruptcy attorney in basically telling our clients, no, we can't discharge them. And that was the end of the discussion. I didn't go into any of these other options because I didn't know any of these options existed. So what we do now is we have held a couple of local CLEs for our local bankruptcy group, as well as we were a panelist for the ABI talking about student loans and FDCPA issues. American Bankruptcy Institute is what ABI stands for. Uh-huh. And in addition to the CLE seminars, we also now publish a column in our local bankruptcy newsletter. It's a quarterly nice newsletter that goes out to attorneys and judges. And it's one of the few things that all of us seem to read. I mean, I don't read a lot of marketing material, but I always look at this thing called the cram down because it's very local. It has local tips that I can use right now. And I I really enjoy it. So hopefully everyone else reads it too. And so uh, uh, we write the column in there. We talk about some student loan successes of ours as well as other folks, programs and such. We write it in a more friendly way. I don't have a lot of case law cited. I mean, I might do one brief case site, but I invite folks to contact me if they want any backup material. I'm happy to send it to them. That way, it's not a lot of legal jargon. It's just a friendly, here's what you can do kind of thing. And we also, one of the funnier things we did is every, every bankrupt uh, debtor has to go to a 341 creditors meeting. And when you're in that room, there's like 30 people or so, 
the only thing to read in the entire room is an FBI notice <laughs> that's above the trustee's head. And, you know, it's scary and it's the only thing to read. And so I have a nice little tote bag that we had Vista print, print up with us. It has our logo with a drowning student in debt and it has our contact information. It's really brightly colored. And so we sit at the front of the room and we face our bag with usually books or folders in it and we face it out to the audience. So you have an audience full of debtor attorneys and debtors who are bored out of their mind because there's nothing to do in this room, maybe looking at our bag. And so the more times someone hears about you or maybe they'll write your name down and they'll search you later. And I have a lot of information on my website. We, we try to make it as transparent as possible. One of the things about the student loan system, and I've done employment law, bankruptcy and foreclosure, student loans is got to be the most complicated system and least transparent of all of them. And, and uh, you have an educated person as a client, but their education doesn't go to the point of they know anything about their student loans. And so many times they're taken advantage of. And so anyway, with this, with this bag, I think that it lets people know that we're out there. If they search the website, they might get a lot more information. We try to put information on there about our successes as well as some of the different programs, how they work, and so forth and so on. And so now, instead of a bankruptcy attorney locally, hopefully after a year or two of us really hitting that, Hopefully they now no longer say there's nothing you can do. Hopefully they say call Christy Arkovich. You know she'll she'll be able to help you. Okay. Yeah, and and I think that's working. And our clients are just beyond ecstatic. Of all the areas of law that I've ever practiced, these student loan clients are the happiest I've ever seen. <laughs> They're so happy that someone's listening to them finally about their student loans because it's it's really harmful. You know, a lot of folks are very much stressed out over their loans. There's a lot of folks that have had problems with their family members, especially if they co-signed on loans, and it's, it's causing a lot of friction there, and they haven't felt like they can really talk to anyone. You know, all they can do is complain about it, and it's something that they're willing to talk about. So unlike bankruptcy, where your client might not run around and say, oh, I know a great bankruptcy attorney, mm-hmm. they will tell you about a great student loan attorney, and so word of mouth is fantastic to get your name out there and ask them to share it on Twitter and Facebook and I still have to figure out Instagram. The thing is, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can't seem to figure out how to post on Instagram. But but there is a way to change it. And I think one of the first ways to start is tell other bankruptcy attorneys what you do and spread around the word. A lot of folks don't want to do student loan work. Great. That's more for you. Mm-hmm. Let them know that you do. And it also didn't hurt that I think we had a CLE that was put on by a trustee. I don't know if it was a U.S. trustee. I think it was one year that basically said that if you weren't doing something about your client's student loans, that you could be, uh, you know, basically creating malpractice or committing malpractice. And I'm not surprised that they would say that because I run into a lot of folks that have filed bankruptcy and they erroneously think that their student loans were discharged in that bankruptcy. No one has told them otherwise. So they've never answered student loan calls. They've thought they're all scams. Mm -hmm. They thought the debt was discharged. They didn't have to deal with it. It got worse and worse and worse. And finally, they get sued or they get garnished. So I don't know if that's malpractice or not, but there's definitely been a disconnect of information where people think that it's been discharged. It really hasn't. So I think helping a debtor get rid of that student loan or at least getting answers that it still exists, here's what you can do about it, is a way to, you know, basically protect yourself as well. Mm Mm-hmm. One of the exciting things for me as a consultant that helps bankruptcy attorneys grow their business 
is that if you advertise on Google AdWords for a keyword like bankruptcy lawyer or bankruptcy attorney, it's such a profitable thing to do if you do it well that pretty soon you're kind of buying all the inventory out there in, say, the Tampa, Florida area. Do you know what I'm saying? Sure. I think I do. Well, there's only like so many people in Tampa. So you're only going to get, you know, X number, you know, like let's say let's say it's a thousand searches for bankruptcy lawyer or bankruptcy attorney or something like that in the Tampa area but you but you're also going to get a ton of searches for student loan lawyer student loan consolidation student loan debt consolidation keywords like that that would be a perfect fit to advertise to acquire customers is that something that you've tried or you've thought about doing i haven't done any adwords I actually did do it for a short time when I was taking BP oil spill cases in Florida. We had that oil spill in the Gulf, and there was about a two-year period that, that there was a lot of people that were trying to handle those cases for their clients. And my clients were all financially distressed, so it worked pretty good. But we did AdSense for those. Or AdWords. Or AdWords, I'm sorry. I haven't really done it for student loans or for bankruptcy, so I don't have any knowledge for that. It's something that maybe I should think about doing here in Florida. I don't know what the cost is. We have boosted some things with Facebook. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I keep pretty lousy track of my return on investment for different marketing efforts. I just throw everything against the wall, basically. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> it's, it's probably not the best way to do it. but So I don't know exactly what would be good. You would be much more of an expert on that. Well, if you just look at the, the keyword for bankruptcy lawyer in the Tampa area, I'm just doing a doing a search on AdWords right now. Okay. The suggested bid is something like $33. Now, only a crazy person would pay $33. You can, on average, I pay like $8 for a keyword like a bank, for a click on a key, uh, on a search like bankruptcy lawyer. But it's, the, the suggested bid is $33 and that's really expensive. Now, one of the cool things about a keyword like student loan bankruptcy is that the suggested keyword is not $33. It's uh, $2.88. Hmm. So it's, you know, we're talking uh, less than 10% of what you'd pay for bankruptcy lawyer, you're paying for bankruptcy, uh, student loan bankruptcy. Sure, sure. Would you be interested in talking to people that have just searched for student loan bankruptcy? Absolutely, yes. And that's something it sounds like I should look into because there's only a few people with student loans that we can't help. You know, every once in a while, we'll run across someone who makes too much money or, mm -hmm. you know, a variety of things where there's really nothing else we can do for them. Or we check and see they're already on the best plan. There's nothing available for them. Nine out of 10, there's absolutely something we can do for them. And it usually saves them quite a bit of money. Mm -hmm. So I would say that our return would probably be pretty decent on that. Yeah. The cool thing for student loan bankruptcy is that, if you're one of the very few people that's actually doing something to help people who have student loans and are considering bankruptcy, then that's why it's so cheap, because no one else is out there trying to bid against you. Okay. Like as an, a counterexample, if you look at just straight up uh, student loan refinancing, something like that. Here, I'll, I'll, I'll do this search right now. Student loan refinancing. And again, this is in Tampa. Student loan consolidation the click is $25.70. $25 sure. And then there was another one, 
student loan refinances uh, sixty three dollars and fifty three cents. <laughs> wow, wow! So there's a, a lot of competition in those areas, and like you're not going to end up paying sixty three dollars if you know what you're doing. But it is a relative indication of how expensive that click is, and so. Yeah, I would imagine that's because there's a lot of companies out there that are not attorneys that do refinances and consolidations. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's why it's probably a lot more competitive. Mm -hmm. But even then, an attorney can offer a lot of advice as to the pitfalls of those things, which they definitely have some that these companies don't offer, but I wouldn't pay 60 some dollars for a click on it, right? Yeah, right. but I mean, if you're if most of them are are refinancing, you know, five hundred thousand dollars in loans, then I could I could see how that would be profitable for them. But those are the same people. I don't have a tremendous amount of respect for debt consolidation people, and those are the I think tend to be the kinds of the idiots that are giving terrible advice to some of your future clients. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of times that a different option would have been better, and nobody ever discussed the other option with the client. Mm -hmm. So I think anyone with student loans would be very much benefited by an attorney, but it doesn't mean that there's not competition out there from non-attorney firms that try to push refinances and consolidations. Mm -hmm. We're always fearful of people refinancing a federal student loan, because the federal interest rates they're not great. I mean, they're, the average is 6.8%. Mm -hmm. So some's higher and some's lower. And that's pretty high. You know, when you can get a second mortgage for three, three and a quarter, three and a half, uh, pull out some equity of your house or whatnot. But there's a lot of pitfalls with that. You lose a lot of government protections for disability and income-based and debt forgiveness. And now you might be putting your spouse on the loan, especially if it's a note mortgage type deal with a mortgage company. Mm -hmm. And you've got collateral that you know can be taken if you don't make the payment. So we are very afraid of people doing refinancing when they shouldn't. People with Parent PLUS loans, for instance, they have no idea they qualify for a payment that's like between zero and $50 based on their income, but yet they're going and taking all this home equity that they might need for retirement and they're throwing it away by paying a student loan that there's an excellent income-based program if they just knew about it. That's one of the ones where you have to change your loan type to be eligible, and unfortunately, a lot of the servicers don't explain how you can make it better. They'll just simply say, well, your options for this loan are this. Mm -hmm. But they won't go into, well, if you do this, you can have this option. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, but I might need to check out some of those Google AdWords, student loan bankruptcy, because I don't think those companies would throw the word bankruptcy in there. You know, they know that they can't practice bankruptcy, and that's not where the market is anyway. Mm -hmm. So that could be interesting. Yeah. I did want to circle back to two things that you mentioned briefly that I thought were really interesting. One thing that you mentioned in passing is that I think in 2008, you stopped practicing employment law. You you mentioned that like it was no big deal, but I could see that being a really hard thing to do. It's like I could easily see myself if I were in your shoes as having that identity as an employment attorney and it being kind of hard to shed that identity and becoming a bankruptcy attorney. Was that hard for you or was it as, as easy, easy as you made it sound? It was easy for me, but I can understand why it would be hard for a lot of people because a lot of people, especially attorneys in some cases, don't like change. It's a very new area of practice. You're right in that I had an identity in that. I had a large referral base. I was on many lists. I had a lot of defense attorneys that would refer us cases. And it was, you know, 90% of my practice at one point. But I was just getting a little burned out with the employment law. And I could see some changes where there were some sanctions cases out of South Florida that were becoming newsworthy. And I didn't want to be on the wrong end of one of those where, where perhaps my 
plaintiff wasn't truthful from the beginning type of thing. Mm -hmm. And I was just looking for something a little different too. Mm -hmm. And I, I consider myself sort of an entrepreneur. So even though I didn't have any business classes per se in law school, my, I come from an entrepreneurial family. My in-laws are the same. They've always owned their own business. And I don't have an issue with pivoting and, and practicing something next to what I'm used to. Mm -hmm. In other words, I'm not going to go into family law or criminal law. I don't know anything about those. But the areas that I have practiced are sort of adjacent to one another. Mm -hmm. And I think to take advantage of opportunities, you have to realize, you know, if you keep your ears open or eyes open, whatever it is, and recognize opportunities when they come in front of you and be able to take that chance. And then when I do go into a new area of law, I try my best to know everything about it. I try to read everything I possibly can about it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to dabble. You know, if it's a case where it's just once in a while, I have no interest in that. Mm -hmm. I don't want to dabble at all. I think you can get in trouble that way. But I once read a quote, and if I can find it while we're talking, I'll um, tell you what it was. Yeah, here we go. There's a quote that I, I like to kind of keep in front of me and says, those who continuously reinvent themselves find the most opportunities for success in life. And that's essentially what I did was reinvent myself as an uh, employment attorney to a foreclosure defense attorney. And I did it at a time where the market was huge. Hardly anyone really recognized how big it was going to be. And there wasn't hardly anyone out there had any good websites on foreclosure defense. And so it was easy to jump in. Now, if it was an established area of law, it may have been much more difficult. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, it was not. And the same with student loans. If there were already good established student loan attorneys and there wasn't much business, then it would probably be a fail. But it's not. There is a lack of student loan attorneys out there and there is a ton of people who need our help. So it's a good area to reinvent yourself and find those opportunities for success, especially if you're current practice areas are in decline. Yeah. I've noticed two things that are kind of relevant here. The first is that when I, I'm, you know, I'm interviewing bankruptcy attorneys for this, for this podcast, and the first thing is that successful ones are keeping an eye out for that adjacent practice area. Yeah. And they're moving into that as they naturally see success in that. I think that's, that's really interesting. The other thing that I see is that you don't really tie yourself up in an identity as like I'm an employment lawyer or I'm a foreclosure lawyer or a bankruptcy lawyer. You just kind of flow with things and then you, you are kind of the sum of what you do. And I, it's, it's really interesting to me. So when you said that about employment, switching from a, being an employment lawyer, I was, I was really impressed by that. Sure. And I, I think that set a pattern for you that you kind of repeated, you know, in the student loan thing. Yeah, if I if I hadn't have changed out of employment to do foreclosure, I may not have been more, you know, as open-minded as I am about doing student loan work. So right now, my website, the title of my website is called Reboot Your Life. And I have a subheading under it called Tampa Student Loan and Bankruptcy Attorney Blog. Mm. And the reason I've changed that recently is because, you know, we don't have a lot of foreclosure defense cases going on in Florida anymore. We have some that are trickling through older cases, but not many new ones. Mm. But my website just gravitates over time to where now in the blog, I'm generally talking about student loans and bankruptcy. There's not that many foreclosure issues that come up that I find interesting enough to, to write about. Mm -hmm. So it just sort of, you know, changes as the market changes. But the BP oil spills, we recognize that, yes, I could maybe get a 10% referral fee from someone who did that, or I could market within my own practice 
for those that had a business that met that test, that standard V test or modified V test where they had a drop in income after the oil spill. Mm-hmm. And I could learn everything I could about it. We purchased some software that would do the calculations for us. And we didn't do a lot of marketing outside the practice, but we marketed to our own clients and we picked up an awful lot of them. And that was a, a very financially lucrative decision for about two years. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's always been a relatively small part of my practice, but it was a very lucrative decision. And, and it's gone through its own pitfalls. I mean, when we first started taking those cases, they were over in 90 days. You know, they would start paying out in 90 days. Then you had a bunch of appeals to where it took ultimately three years. Mm. At one point, I even offered to sell my BP oil spill claims to a plaintiff's firm here in town that was um, very large. And they weren't interested because they also were not that happy with how the cases were going and the appeal process and everything. Mm -hmm. And within one month, they started to settle. (laughs) And so I'm really glad that they didn't take me up on my offer to buy my portfolio because as it turns out, they were very lucrative for my, for me and for my clients. And I'm very happy to have taken them on, but, but yeah. And I wouldn't have recognized that opportunity if I didn't realize, well, Hey, I'm collecting tax returns anyway. I'm collecting pretty much all the data that you need to present a BP oil spill claim. Why don't I do it? Why do I need someone else to do it? Sure. And I just need to learn everything I can about it, buy some software that helps me do it. And that worked out great, but it wasn't family law or criminal or something way outside of my area of expertise. Mm -hmm. It was adjacent. Mm -hmm. And right now, I think TCPA cases, I think they're adjacent. You know, they're they're basically a consumer violation. We've always done creditor harassment work, but it can potentially be very lucrative. I think it has a window. In other words, maybe the laws might change or the FCC administrative orders might come down less favorably in the future. So I think it may have a lifespan of, you know, a couple years or so, who knows, but why not take advantage of that now while it's an avenue to drastically reduce student loan debt, yeah. uh, private debt, that is. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the second observation that I had is it's, it's, it's a little, it's a smaller observation, I suppose. But on the foreclosure defense side, I was wondering, do you do a lot of foreclosure defense work outside of the bankruptcy process or was that kind of... Um, a lot of it was outside. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, with our foreclosure work, we did loan mods in the bankruptcy co- uh, court. Mm-hmm. But other than that, most of our defense work was in state court. Mm-hmm. And I had done a lot of civil litigation throughout my career, so that didn't bother me at all. I know a lot of bankruptcy attorneys, sometimes they'll shy away from litigation. Yes. They're more used to an administrative type form-based practice. Mm. But if you maybe get into it gradually or have someone help you, it might be okay. I, I've always done it, so it's never been a problem. So we did thousands of foreclosure defense cases, and ultimately we were looking for a goal of a short sale or a loan modification or or something to fit our clients' needs, and everybody's a little different, Mm -hmm. but it was mostly outside of bankruptcy. Okay. I know at least one bankruptcy attorney who told me recently that if you're not a good foreclosure defense attorney, then you're kind of getting two bites of the apple. You're going to fail on the foreclosure defense side, and then he's going to come in on the bankruptcy side and then stop the foreclosure. But but it sounds like you had a lot more success than this attorney had seen for foreclosure defense attorneys. You had a higher win rate. Right. We never, ever tried to steer our foreclosure cases into like a mandatory bankruptcy. We were offering it as an alternative to bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. And so for the clients who wanted to keep homes, if they didn't have any other problems, why put them in a bankruptcy? Just do a loan modification. Mm-hmm. For clients who didn't have any other debt, but they just had this house that was hugely underwater, do a short sale, get a deficiency waiver, 
why do a bankruptcy for them? So it was just another tool in our toolbox. Some become bankruptcies, of course, Mm -hmm. but I think if you looked back at the average, I mean, we never kept track of this, but I think a small percentage of them probably ultimately became bankruptcies, Mm -hmm. maybe a little more lately because loan mods aren't working that well. And, you know, I mean, the market's pretty much, there's not much of a market anymore. Those that are in foreclosure now are usually on the tail end where we might be filing a bankruptcy because they just contacted us. They're just about to lose the house. It's not at the early stages any longer. Mm -hmm. It's pretty much late in the game. But yeah, it was just another tool in our toolbox. Do you use direct mail for foreclosure notices? Because I know that's a, like, I'm sorry, you get the foreclosure notices from the from the state, maybe from a website, and then you send them direct mail to solicit for bankruptcy? We did not. We did not do any direct mail for bankruptcy or for foreclosure defense. We focused on putting a lot of information on our website. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of client referrals. There was just so much foreclosure demand. I don't know how, how they found us. Mm-hmm. We do do some direct mail for student loans. And the reason I do that is because with foreclosures, they'll get 20 or 30 letters from attorneys or more. How will my letter be differentiated from theirs? With student loans, if they get sued by a student loan company, they probably will get some generic letters. You know, we, we defend debt. We file bankruptcy. We consolidate debt. Just some generic letters. But do they get a letter specifically about student loans? I doubt it. I I really doubt it because there's really no one that does direct mail for student loans locally that I'm aware of. So our letter is the only one that's like that, and hopefully it stands out. And defending a private private student loan case, we often can achieve a dismissal or a very low settlement amount. So the results are very good, and they're very lucrative for us. So we do send direct mail for private student loan cases. That's genius. So what you're what you're saying is that you just look at the general civil court notices or whatever it's called in the state of Florida, and you look for where the plaintiff is someone like Navient or Sally Mae or some some exactly. And then you send them a custom well a form letter. That's that's genius. That's great. I, I love that. Yes, and we have and we have testimonials that were approved by the Florida bar before the letters are sent. And our letter, I guarantee, will stand out from any other generic debt collector type letter that they would get. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things that we say in our letter is, you know, don't let them get a default judgment. 90%, when I did my survey back then, when I first created the letter, 90% of the people who were sued for a private student loan didn't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. And, And here's why. They'd already tried to work out something with the lenders and the lender said no. They have already maybe talked to a bankruptcy attorney and the bankruptcy attorney said there's nothing you can do. Yeah. So they, they think, well, it's not like I owe two grand. I can't make payments on this. It's huge. Why do I even want to you know, call an attorney? And they just let them get a default judgment. Yep. Well, you know, default judgments last you know, 20 some years, depending if they renew. And they also can garnish 25% of someone's wages. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to negotiate post-judgment if there's a garnishment wage order in place. Mm-hmm. The other side says, you know, no, I'm already getting paid. I don't need to talk to you. Yeah. You know, so those clients become bankruptcy clients, not to get rid of the student loans, but to simply lift the wage garnishment order and try to get back on a platform that we can talk with the other side. Sure. So I think our, I, th- I hope our letters are effective. I've never really, once again, I don't track things like I should, so I've never known what the return of investment is on those, but at least you're not getting 30 letters that look the same. Well, let me uh, give a tip to you and the world in general on how you would track the return on investment. Okay. Sign up for a service like a call tracking service. I use a company called CallRail, C-A-L-L. 
R-A-I-L.com. It doesn't matter. You could literally type in phone call tracking service. You set up a telephone number that's just associated with this letter. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, let's say that your normal number is 111-1111. You set up a number like 222-2222 that every time they call it, it redirects to 111-1111. Okay. And if you're not in a two-party consent state, I think Florida is a one-party consent state, you can actually record the calls. Even if you don't, you could at least log that you're getting these phone calls and you can see, you know, any call that's longer than a minute is probably a good lead. So then you can track, hey, I'm you know spending $1,000 a month mailing out these letters and with uh, the time for my administrative assistant to put these letters together. Sure. But I'm getting 30 calls a month, and so you know that that's you know, really effective, something like that. So What about in our case? We invite them in the letter to read our blog, to read our reviews, and our website. And so if I were reading that letter, I probably would look at that first before I made the phone call. And then they go onto our website or blog, and then they would submit maybe an online form where we say, you know, for free consult, click this button and whatnot. So then it would come through our website. So I like your idea, but I'm not sure it would that be that accurate. Okay. Well, there's a very easy workaround there, which is that you uh, don't just say go to my blog and give them your regular christyblog.com. A separate landing page. You don't even have to create a separate landing page. What you can do is you can talk to your webmaster or somebody like me and you can be like, set up a special URL that's like like a bit.ly like bit kind of link counter. Okay. Have you ever clicked on a bit.ly link? I think so, but I don't know what it is. Well, it's just like bit.ly slash bit.ly slash and then it's like some special text or, you know. Okay. And every time you click it, you can count it and you can do analytics. You don't have to use Bitly. This is a just a, a, it's an easy and free kind of thing. And then you can create christyspecialletter.com and you can tell, you, you can buy that URL and then you can redirect it to that Bitly link so that every time someone clicks on it, you can see, you can see that, oh, I sent this out. I got, you know, 15 phone calls from this letter last month and I got 30 people who checked out the blog. And so that would work. Yeah. So then you kind of get both things. But the other piece of unsolicited advice I'd give you is, don't send people to check out your blog. Just tell them to call you and to set up an appointment. It's always people underestimate the power of giving a single call to action and educating people, get, getting people into your sales funnel. So what I would rather do as a marketing kind of person is I'd rather get someone to call me and then when they call, I'd set up an appointment and then put them on a on an email uh, sure. like autoresponder so that they're getting 10 short emails from me over the next two weeks and and I'm setting up an appointment for them to come in and you know that's 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 probably how I would, I would swing it I would probably focus on that single call to action and I would I would probably focus on the telephone call okay okay good point the single call to action yeah I do like that Okay, well, this is awesome. Christy, I've, I've learned a lot, and I want to thank you for joining us on the podcast. Absolutely. I hope that maybe some attorneys listening to this might want to try to delve into student loan practice because I have found it to be very, you know, in it's not the most lucrative practice in the planet, but it has a lot of feeders that lead to other work, like consumer-oriented work and so forth. So I do think it's very worthwhile. It really helps complement a bankruptcy practice. 
And it's much, it, there's a great need for it. People just don't have enough advice and knowledge as to what to do with their student loans. Yeah. So thanks for the opportunity. Awesome. Thank you. Bye-bye.